At Duke University, there were four sophomores who were taking organic, organic chemistry, and they did so well on all their quizzes, midterms, labs, that each of them had an A so far in the semester. In fact, they were so confident of their knowledge of the subject and the grades that they had to date that before the finals, they decided to travel to Charlottesville to the University of Virginia to uh, go and have a weekend of partying with their friends. Anyway, make a long story short, the weekend went uh, longer than they thought. Uh, they didn't get up in time to get back to uh, Duke for their final examination. So they came up with a story, and the story was that uh, basically they had a flat tire on the way. They got to the professor after the final was given, went to him and said, we're really sorry we missed it. We did the best that we could to be here on time, but we had a flat tire on our way back, and it took a long time for anybody to help us. And anyway, can we take the final? And the professor recognized them as, as uh, good students, and he said, sure, just come back tomorrow. So they walked away with a smile on their face that they had another day to study for the final, showed up the next morning, and uh, the professor gave each of them a textbook or, and, uh, and basically the blue book to do the, uh, the test that they had, sent each of them to a separate room, so the four of them went to separate rooms, and they proceeded to take the test. The first question on the test was something rather simple about radical formation, and we all know how simple that could be. And they thought, well, that's pretty cool. And each one of them in a separate, in a separate room thought, this is going to be really easy. And as they looked at it, they said, that was worth five points. Then they turned the page to the second page, worth 95 points, was this question. Which tire was flat? <laughs> See, all, all the teachers in here going, hey, I like that. That's good. You know, and as I heard that story, you know, I was reminded of once again how often as human beings we're not as smart as we may think. And as we've been addressing the question, what does the future hold? I think so oftentimes as we speculate as human beings as to what is in store, it doesn't take long before it's quickly proven that what we thought was not correct and it didn't turn out as we suspected that it might. And while man may speculate about the future, God is certain of what lies ahead. In fact, not only does he know, but he is in absolute control, moving events forward to accomplish his purposes. And today we're going to um, go and examine one of the most exciting of all future events, one that all believers have longed for and hoped for, for since the time that Jesus departed from this earth and returned to heaven, according to Acts chapter 1. And that is an event that even those who don't believe in God refer to oftentimes in ignorance. For example, the, uh, the other day I was reading an article, and it was, well, let me just read it. It says, uh, don't ask me to explain it, for I have no idea. The appeal of Andreo Bocelli is beyond me. I'm no psychologist, I've never studied mass hysteria, and I'm just a classic guy. He says, but when he entered the Arrowhead Pond on the arm of conductor Marcello Rota, and the crowd roared Thursday night, I was dumbfounded says, uh, was this the second coming? Was it Elvis alive? No, it was just an Italian tenor who hadn't sung anything yet, and where I come from, we usually wait. Now, you know, as I was reading this, and that's just the introduction to the article concerning a review of that particular uh, concert, uh, but I note the question that stood out was, was this the second coming? You know, leave it to this world that we live in to compare a singer or an athlete to the second coming of Jesus Christ with no thought as to what they're really saying. And uh, was this the second coming? I can uh, assure you that it wasn't. And uh, it's not even close. And if you've got your Bibles, you'll see why I can be so confident. But in Revelation chapter 19, we're going to take a look at what the Bible says concerning this event that's yet to come in the future, and that is the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
Revelation chapter 19. We'll pick up the account starting with verse 11. Where we find these words. Revelation 19 verse 11 we read this. It says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and he wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe that's dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. It says, And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name that is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come and assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army." It says, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. And those who worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword with which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. As we read this account, it's a tremendous account, and it's one that just leaves you kind of almost breathless. It doesn't get much more exciting than this. And in fact, in one sense, all that we have studied to date in this series builds to one, this one uh, dramatic, uh, spectacular moment of prophecy. And that is the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. While may, we, you know, we may hear of references, can, for example, in the, in the article that I just recently read, we may hear of references to the event. We may even read bumper stickers uh, that refer to it. Only the Bible, which is the written word of God, can do it any justice. And in fact, in Revelation 1-7, we read these words, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. That moment has arrived. He is not coming in the air to take his people uh, to home. Uh, as we learned in, about, quote, the rapture in 1 Thessalonians, he's not coming into the air to take his people with him, but he's coming to the earth with his people to rule on the earth, to conquer his enemies, and to establish his kingdom, which the Bible says will be a kingdom that will have no end. And uh, as we look at this, we've got to ask some questions, and that is, what does the Bible teach us concerning this event, this incredible event, which lies ahead? And there are several things that we're going to look at. First, I want to break it up in verses 11 through 16, and we're going to take a look at the spectacular description that God gives concerning this coming event. We're giving a, It's absolutely incredible when you look at it and consider the ramifications of it. Look at verse 11, for example. It says, And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. As we read in this description, the first thing that jumped out at me was that here it is, heaven was opened up. You know, I saw heaven opened as if the veil to heaven, the curtain was pulled back, and we get a glimpse to see the glory of God and all that, and all that he contains. And it's a wonderful truth when you think about it. We can begin to address the question. Many of us have asked that question, what will heaven be like? 
What's it going to be like when we get there? What's heaven going to be all about? You know, what can we look forward to? And as we look at this, it's as if John says, I, I saw heaven opened up. The gates of heaven, the, 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 the curtain was torn aside. And as he's looking up into heaven, he saw the glory of God. Glory is only God can display. I thought I was immediately reminded, if any of you have read the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7, the first recorded martyr was a man whose name was Stephen. And he was killed because of his faith and trust that he put in Jesus Christ. And in that day when you stoned somebody, you laid them in the bottom of a pit. And they were facing up. And all the accusers would come around and, and they would look down into the pit. And they would take stones and they would drop them on the person that they were stoning to death. And as he laid there and as he stared up into space, he said this to those who were killing him. He says, and I saw into heaven... And I saw the glory of God. And I saw Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God. And when they heard this, they couldn't stand listening. And they began to throw stones with even greater fervor and greater fury. The Bible says the Apostle Paul, who was at that time known as Saul, was standing and was in hearty approval of the murder of Stephen. And as we look at this and the glory that we see as we peer into heaven, we begin to get a glimpse of something that is to come, something that we can look forward to. It's spectacular in its display. As we think about it, even the Apostle Paul later was given a glimpse of heaven, the very presence of God. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, And I saw, I was caught up into the third heaven, which is the presence of God. He says, I was in heaven. I saw God and the glory of God. And you know what it did? It gave him the strength to go through the persecution that he was going through as he lived his life here on earth. I think sometimes as we get a glimpse of God and the glory of God and what lies ahead, that it gives us the strength and the grace that we need to go through the trials and the tribulations of this world. And as I've often said, and I challenge you again to do the same thing, we need to take our eyes off of our circumstances, we need to take our eyes off of all of our problems, and we need to get a glimpse of heaven and stare into the face of Jesus Christ, and here he is sitting on a white horse, and he will come again and he will establish his kingdom, and it's spectacular, and that God gives us grace in our time of weakness, because in our weakness, his strength is perfected. The apostle Peter went on to say this as he looked into heaven, first Peter chapter one, he said, let me just tell you something. For those of you who have any doubts in your mind, heaven will be incomprehensible. It'll be the, it'll be better than anything that you can ever imagine. You will not be disappointed. Some of, sometimes I think that it's God's plan that we go through trials and tribulations here on earth, because many of us can complain about the best day that we have here. I mean, stop and think about it. It's like, you know what? I think God just dumps it all on us so we can go through it and see that, you know what? We can't handle this on our own and it's all in God's hands and it's all in God's control. And you know what? Because when we get to heaven, we're not going to complain about anything ever again. And I think that's why it's called heaven. Because, you know, you ever get tired of listening to people complain? It's like, you know what? There's a day coming when we're in heaven in the presence of God that even the best of you who are complainers won't have anything to come up with. You'll be silent for a long time in heaven, which will make it heaven for the rest of us. <laughs> Just thought I'd share that with you. Out of heaven he comes, and as we'll learn from this passage, Jesus Christ is riding a white horse. And it's important that we understand the significance of this white horse, because a white horse is a symbol of triumph and victory. It was customary um, in that particular time for a triumphant Roman general, for example, to parade on the Via Sacra, which is a main thoroughfare of Rome. 
And he would parade as he went down the street on the white horse, showing that he was a conquering warrior, that he was victorious. And that, and that as those who would follow him, it would be the spoils of the victory. And oftentimes the captives that were a part of that particular uh, uh, battle or campaign. And as we look at this, it's amazing to me because the, sim- the symbolism here is that Jesus Christ is sitting on a white horse. And he marches into town. And he is a conquering warrior. And he is victorious. And the question is, what has he conquered? He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. He has conquered pain. He has conquered suffering. And the Bible says in heaven there will be no more suffering. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow. And he'll wipe away every one of our tears. And he is a conquering victor. And he is, and he is a warrior. And as we look at this picture, what a tr- tremendous contrast it is. And I'll get into it a little bit more. But as I was reading through it, the first thing that I could think of was that when Jesus, if you recall, rode into Jerusalem, he rode in on a colt. And he rode in with all humility as a servant. And he rode in on the cult symbolizing that he came to bring peace on earth. Even the angel announced his birth and said, Peace on earth, goodwill to men in whom God is pleased. That Jesus came to bring peace to man. Peace with God and peace of ourselves. That we can have peace not only with God and with one another, but we can also have peace in our own life. And Jesus Christ came to bring peace. And as he rode into Jerusalem on that cult, on, on that, that burden or that, that uh, animal of peace, He was making a statement, but that statement is over because as we'll see here, he rides in and he rides in on a white horse because now he is a conquering warrior. And we're going to see the details of that, which are to follow as we go through this. And I want to take a look at it just one at a time because it's, it's, it's spectacular in its description as to what has taken place here. The first thing that we see of this spectacular description of his coming is this, the names that God uses to describe Jesus Christ. Though many names are used in the Bible to describe the person and the work of Jesus Christ, this one passage describes his return to earth and focuses on four characteristics of his name. The first characteristic that we see in verse 11 is this, And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. The reliability of his name. He is faithful and he is true. In uh, Revelation 1.5, we're told that he is the faithful witness. And in Revelation 3.14, that he is faithful, that he is a faithful and true witness. I want you to understand this because Jesus Christ is faithful in contrast to the Antichrist or coming world leader. Jesus Christ was faithful. He is faithful. The Antichrist or coming world leader was not faithful because he broke his covenant or promise that he makes with the nation of Israel that he would provide peace to their land for seven years. In the three and a half year point, he breaks that covenant. He's not faithful. His word cannot be trusted. And yet he rules also by uh, falsehood or deception. Jesus Christ does not. We need to be reminded that God is faithful, that his word is true. As difficult that is to fully comprehend in a society where one's word no longer means anything or is not as bond or where promises are so easily broken. I think probably the greatest example of that is a culture where over 50% of our marriages end in divorce. And if you stop and think about it, what it really boils down to, it boils down to unfaithfulness and and a lack of determination to fulfill a promise. And every person and every wedding that I've ever had the privilege to officiate and every one that you've ever gone to have heard the words, do you promise to love and obey? Do you promise through sickness and in health, through good times and bad and richer and in poor, do you promise to be there in Until death do you part. And in Christian weddings often is inserted. Or until Jesus comes first. Do you make that promise or commitment? It is a commitment that we make. And it honors our word when we say. You know what? Right now I don't even like you. But I'm committed to work through this. And there's a lot to be said for that. 
We live in a culture where our words don't mean anything anymore. We manipulate them. We try to get around them. We say one thing and hope that people didn't understand it to mean what we meant it when we said it, but we hope we can find some loophole to mean something else. We've got contracts that are written. I'm in the construction industry. I read contracts and it's a joke. You read them over and over again and every other line tries to come up with some way that there's always an unless. We promise to do this unless we can figure out a good reason not to do it. And then we got to hire an attorney to read it and scratch out all of those and throw in his own language. And the other attorney reads it and he scratches that out and he throws in his own language. And, you know, and what's amazing to me, there was a day in this country where you could walk over to a person and say, I am going to do this and you are going to do that and we will shake hands and that's all we have to do. There was a day like that. No longer. We live in a day and age where we can't trust one another. Where we try to get out of that which we say. But thank God that God is faithful and He is true. Is it any wonder why some of us have a problem understanding how secure our relationship with God is in a culture where we say something to one another and we find a way to dishonor it? It's not confusing or surprising to me that people don't understand what their relationship with God can be all about. There are some basic, because God is faithful, there are many wonderful blessings that are ours that are promised in the Word of God. For example, He makes good on His promises. Hebrews 10.23, we're told that He is faithful and He makes good on His promises. And that means this in simple terms so we all understand. If God says it, He means it, and He will bring it to fruition. Including what? That He will come again. Jesus Christ said, I will come again. And that where I am, you will always be for those who put their faith and trust in Him. That is a promise of God, not based on anything other than the Word of God. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. He also, because He's faithful, helps us to overcome temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, There's no temptation that has overtaken man, but is common to man. But listen to me. But God is faithful who will not allow us to be tempted beyond that which we're able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you and I may be able to endure it. Listen very carefully here, and let's just get this as clear as possible. Because God is faithful, He will provide a way of escape from temptation, which is evil, which is doing that which is wrong before God, for the child of God, the person who's put their faith and trust in Christ, he will, he, will, he will provide a way of escape. I am so tired of the lame excuse that Christians make to justify their disobedience before God when we say this. I couldn't help myself. Yes, you could. Because God is faithful, He will provide a way of escape. If you turn to Him and commit to Him, He will get you out of that situation that leads to temptation to do what's wrong before God. The bottom line is this, and we don't want to hear it in our culture, and that's this. We sin as Christians because we choose to. The escape route is there, it's available for us, but there are times in our life where we just say, you know what, and even we know it, and we say it in our own hearts, and our own minds, we say, you know what, I know what I'm about to do is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway, and I'm going to see if what God has to say is true about the consequences of doing wrong before God. The worse appears the better. 
And that's what temptation is. That's what enticement is. It is to get us to do that which God says is wrong by promising some kind of benefit or blessing that in the long run ends up being nothing more than heartache and grief. Because God is faithful, we do not have to fall into temptation. Because God is faithful, he protects us from the enemy. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 Because God is faithful, he will never leave us or forsake us. God's faithfulness makes it impossible for him to turn his back on his promises. And and including in those promises are the promises that he makes to us, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The single greatest argument, scripturally, for the fact that once a person puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ and becomes a child of God, that he will always be a child of God is because that's what God says. Period. Not based on our performance, not based on our failure, not based on our lack of performance. If you are a child of God, regardless of how stupid we can be sometimes, the bottom line is this. While we are faithless, he remains faithful. See, that's why we struggle with our identity as far as being Christians. That's why we wrestle with even the question, can a Christian lose his salvation? Can a Christian lose his relationship with God? Can a Christian lose... Hey, you know what? If it was up to us, we'd lose it the second after we get it. But it's not up to us. It's based on the promises of God. While we are faithless, he is faithful. Thank God that it's not based on our performance. Because he's faithful, he will also forgive us our sins. If we confess our sins, he is what? He is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. That's a wonderful truth because he is true and he's not a counterfeit. We can be confident that he is genuine and totally reliable. He is the true God. Not only can we trust his word and believe his promises, but we can also be assured that they'll come to pass exactly as he says. If you, you want to become more like Jesus, what would Jesus do? The bracelets say, the shirts say, the necklaces say. What would Jesus do in this situation? Let me just give you something to walk out of here with and apply in your life and it will change your life and that's this. What would Jesus do if he made a promise? He would keep it. What should you do? What should I do if we make a promise? We should keep it. Regardless of the cost, regardless of the inconvenience, regardless of, oh, I didn't know something better would come up. If you make a promise, keep it. That's why anytime I make a commitment or a promise, I'm very careful about saying yes. I try to anticipate everything that could come up that would cause me to wrestle with whether or not I'll be able to do it. And it's really hard when you're talking to people that say, hey, next year, would you, uh, could you do our wedding? Uh, can you do this a year from now? Can you come and speak somewhere a year or two from now? It's like, well, you know what? I, I, I need to look at it. And it's like, you know, and I always look. Okay, when, when you know, I was working with the Rams, it was always, okay, what's going on? I don't even have the schedule. I'm sorry, I can't do it yet. Now working with the angels, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't make that commitment until I know what the schedule is because I already have a prior commitment that I need to honor. And if it works within the framework of what I've already committed to, I'd be glad to do it. But I don't know. And then it's like, oh man, well what if they make the playoffs? And what if we get in the World Series? And some of you laugh, like don't worry about that. <laughs> but I'm hopeful. And I gotta have, I know you gotta leave the, the spot vacant. Go great. First time ever, here I am, I made a commitment. And you know what? And you have to honor it. See, that's the point. The point that I'm trying to make is very simple. That is, you know what? Honor your word. Honor your commitment. You want to be a light in darkness? 
You want to be a city set upon a hill? You want to make a difference for the kingdom of God? When you tell somebody something, follow through on it, and they can't even believe it. When I call and make appointments to go out to customers and I show up on time or early, they're just like blown away. It's like I thought you were a contractor. I, uh, I am. Well, we didn't expect you. Then why'd you set an appointment? Well, it's just a, you know, an exercise in futility most of the time. Okay, well, hey, I'm here. Okay, you know what? It, it, it doesn't take hard to be successful when you honor your word. If you say you're going to do what you do and you do it, it just blows people away. They can't wait to refer you to other people. It's like, you know what? They showed up when they're supposed to. They did what they're supposed to do. They did a good job. They, they didn't try to find ways to add to the price. So it was like, wow, how revolutionary of an idea that is. I hate to even share it with some of you because you may be competing with me. But I'll take my chances. His names, his reliability. Look at the recognition of his name, which is incredible. Look at verse 12. It says, he has a name that's written upon him which no one knows except himself. You know why I like that? The re- this recognition of his name, I love that because guess what? Some of us think that we got a real good handle on God. I, I already did that study. Oh, what are you doing? Yeah, been there, done it. Yeah, I studied that book before. I read that passage. I read that chapter. Oh, you know what? You just totally comprehend God and everything about God, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Well, here it is. Here's a name that no one knows except he himself. You know, when we get to heaven, we're going to learn more things about Jesus Christ than we're, that we could ever learn, even from the Word of God. Isn't it an incredible thought? And some of us are so familiar, some of us are so comfortable with our, the, the knowledge that we have and the level that we're in in our walk with God that we think, you know what, I don't really have to study the Bible today. I don't have to study the Bible. I don't have to go to church. I don't have to do any of these things because, you know, i got a pretty good handle on this God thing. Really? He's incomprehensible. He's given a name that even is a name that nobody but himself knows. And it just shows me how sometimes I was as smart as I think I am. I'm not very smart at all. In fact, the longer that I live, the more I realize I don't know a whole bunch. But I still know more than my kids. <laughs> and so do you, right, parents? Amen. All right. Just make sure we don't, you know, somebody takes something out of context here. Verse 13. Look at the revelation of his name. Verse 13, he is clothed with a robe that's dipped in blood and his name is called what? The Word of God. Does it ring a bell for any of you who maybe are, are wondering if this is really Jesus Christ returning from heaven? In the beginning was the Word and the Word is with the God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth, John chapter 1. There's no question that we're referring to in this, in this event is Jesus Christ returning to this earth. The royalty of his name in verse 16 is an incredible statement as well. It says, and on his robe and on his thigh he, was, he has a name that's written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Does it ring a bell? King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the king of every king that ever walked the face of the earth. He is the Lord of every Lord that was ever given a position of power and a position of authority. All the great kings and all the great presidents and all the great world leaders, guess what? They pale in comparison to Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. Philippians chapter 2, the word of God just comes alive, doesn't it? Where it says, and because he humbled himself and was obedient to the point of death on the cross, that because of that obedience, that God gave him a name, a name that was greater than any other name. And at the name of Jesus, one day every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. Every person ever created that walked the face of the earth, and even those who died and never had a a moment to walk, 
but they live today. The Bible says that they, every one of us, will bend our knee to him because he has been given a name that's greater than every name and that his name, every man, woman, and child will bend a knee and recognize that he is God to the glory of God the Father himself. But you know what? You're either going to do it now or you're going to do it then. And if you do it then, it's too late. It's too late to enter His grace. It's too late to be forgiven. It's too late to enter into heaven. But you will buy one day. And the question is this. When do you want to do it? Do it now and enjoy the benefits of a relationship with God and forgiveness and eternity in heaven with Him. Or do it as you stand before the great white throne judgment of God. You're going to do it then and it will be the last thing that you do before He casts you into the lake of fire and separates you from the very presence of God and all of His blessings. The bottom line is this. Every person will do it. It's a question of when that will take place. Notice also His nature that's given to us as we go through this passage in verses 11 through 13. The character and nature of Jesus Christ is dramatically described in this passage where it says in verse 11, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat upon it's called faithful and true. And notice this, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His justice. His justice is in righteousness. No one can ever stand before Jesus Christ and whine the typical whiny excuse this isn't fair. This isn't fair. You know what? You will never be able to stand. If you reject Jesus Christ and one day you stand before him at the great white throne judgment, you will never be able to utter that common phrase, this isn't fair. Do you know why? Because not only is it true because there is no evil in him or that he cannot lie, but also because he knows all things. See, he judges in righteousness. And he knows all things. And that's indicated in verse 12 by the fact that his eyes are a flame of fire. Speaking of judgment, he knows all things. Hebrews 4.13 says this. He says, There is no creature that's hidden from his sight, speaking of Jesus Christ. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Do you, do you hear that? Jesus Christ, when he judges, will be right in his judgment. The reason that he's right in his judgment is because he sees all things and knows all things. Let me give you a for instance. Some of you right now, he knows whether or not you're daydreaming at this very moment. Of course, you just missed that because you're not paying attention. The person sitting next to you that thinks the person next to you is daydreaming, you may want to remind them of that truth a little bit later. But the reality of it is this, that he knows right now that which you are not exposing to people around you. He knows whether you're daydreaming. He knows whether you're bored. He knows whether you can't wait to get out of here. He knows whether you're really uncomfortable right now. He knows whether you came with a friend because they promised a free lunch and you didn't realize you'd have to endure this. He knows that. He knows all of that. And what's, what's, what's wonderful and comforting to me is this. He also knows whether you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins or whether you continue to trust in yourself and in your own performance. He knows that. He also knows whether you lived a thousand years, whether you would ever put, bend your knee and, and receive Christ as your Savior and Lord. He knows that. He knows you could live 20 lifetimes and he would know whether or not you would ever give your life and heart to Jesus Christ. And I want to just give you a, a word of comfort for those who have ever had somebody in their family who have died and they're not sure of their relationship with God. They're not sure whether you've ever believed in Jesus Christ or not. What I can assure you and comfort you is with these words and that is this. Whatever he does is right 
and whatever he does is just. And he knows whether a person has given their heart to Christ or he knows whether that person in their pride and their arrogance trusted in church attendance or trusted in their own efforts or trusted in their own works. And he knew whether they lived 10 million years that they would continue to do the same thing. Whatever he does is just and it's right. And there's great comfort in that. The point that I'm trying to make is this. If any of you are playing games with God, you can't win. You just cannot win. It's time to get right with God. He knows it, and you know it. The question is a matter of when are you going to be obedient? When are you going to heed his call? Because he's faithful, if we confess our sins, he will forgive us. And he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise of God. He made it, and he'll keep it. It's interesting is, is that if it applies, no matter what area of your life we're talking about, then what I would say is um, just do it. Get right with God and do it today. Notice also his authority, which is fascinating as you look at this. It says in the armies, look at verse 14, in the armies uh, which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. It says the armies which are in heaven, clothed in white linen, white and clean, were following him. It's a question of authority, a matter of authority. He is out in front and everybody else is behind him and that's exactly where we belong. It is also a very strong argument for a pre-tribulation rapture or when Jesus Christ will take the church to heaven because we're told that here in, in the rapture or the gathering together, he comes for his church and here at the end of the tribulation, which is the end of the seven years, he comes with the great armies of heaven and they are clothed in fine linen and they are white and clean, meaning that they have been redeemed by God and they have been and made pure. Though our sins are as scarlet, what? He will make them white as snow. And the armies of heaven come with them. And I believe this to be the case, and I get excited about it because guess what? If you've trusted in Jesus Christ and you've confessed your sin before God and you've received him or believe in him, and the rapture takes place and, and, and you are taken as part of that particular promise of God, there's a day coming at the end of the seven years where we will be following him and we'll be included in the armies of heaven that will come with him to establish the kingdom that he promises here on earth and we will rule and we will reign with him. And that's a wonderful promise. And I'll tell you what, when we have bad days every now and then here on earth, all you've got to do is just picture that scene and remember that we'll be a part of that contingent of believers who return with him. It also could be those in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 12, who are resurrected at the last or at the end of the tribulation. And they could be resurrected and they will be taken up and they too will follow along with those of the church who have believed in Christ. That's a wonderful promise. It's a wonderful truth. And notice also here in verse 15, something that we don't like to talk about in our culture, but I want to touch base on it because it's true and it's in the word of God and that's this and from his mouth <clears throat> comes a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God almighty we see a picture of his robes dipped in blood revelation 14 you got your book open turn back a couple chapters and just read this account the wrath of God chapter 14 look at verse 14 through 20 as we see the picture of what's to come. It says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to put to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. 
And it says, And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out of the altar. And he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. How graphic the judgment of God. And I want to throw this out right now because we've got a very serious problem in our culture today. And that is the, the problem of the false teaching of our day, that which promotes that what I call the hippie Jesus dude. The hippie Jesus dude, the Jesus that is cool, the Jesus who would have no problem with what we call in our culture alternative lifestyles, which is none other than a polite term for what God calls as sin. The Jesus who wouldn't judge such behavior but would promote love and peace and joy. And the question that I have for you is this, does God love people? And the answer is absolutely. For God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would what? Not perish or be judged, but have everlasting life. God loves people. The bottom line is he sent Jesus Christ when we're yet sinners to die in our place. He demonstrated his love by doing so. He loves people. Jesus Christ died for people. But the question is, why did he have to die? And the answer is simple. Because he died to pay the price for sin. It says that those who would be, believe in him would be spared. And the question is, spared from what? And it's spared from the judgment of God. We use terms that many in our culture don't understand. We use terms like, are you saved? Saved from what? They don't have an idea what it means. Saved from what? It's a, it's a silly term to use from people, but if it, if it introduces a conversation that basically says, hey, what are you talking about? Saved from what? Saved from the coming wrath and judgment of God. Jesus Christ came to save you from the penalty that you must pay for your own sins and that he took his place on the cross and he substituted himself for you. Are you saved from the penalty of your disobedience before God? Are you saved from the coming wrath of God? Are you saved from the judgment of God? We don't understand judgment in our culture because we don't understand accountability for our actions. And it's like mind-boggling to people that anyone would be held accountable for their actions. Well, you know what? As bad as the system is, we still hold people accountable for their actions. Sometimes people get fired from their jobs because of what? They don't show up on time. They lied on their employment application. They don't do a very good job. They misrepresented themselves when they got hired. They said they knew so many things. We just had a guy not long ago. It's like, man, he knew everything until we hired him. Then he knew nothing. And guess what? It was like, oh, we can't judge him. Judge him? Hey, you're fired. Take a hike. You know, I mean, and, and of course I said a lot nicer than that. But it was, you know, it was in our terms that we use. Come and pick up your last check. You mean the last one from last week? No, I mean the last one for all of eternity. So help me God. I, and I will fulfill my promise. See, the, the reality is this. that You know, well, that's the kind of culture that we live in. And we don't look at accountability. But you know what? There are still people who go to jail who are held accountable for their actions. And we need that. And we sit there and we go like this. Well, I'm glad that people are held accountable for their actions. But I certainly don't want to ha be held accountable by God for mine. Duh. Tough. You're going to be. So just get it straight. We are all held accountable for our actions. And God knows what they all are even when we don't even know. Some of you got stuff you got hidden nobody else knows about. Guess what? God does. You're busted. So you might as well confess it and deal with it because he already knows about it. It's like, you can't hide from him. Where are you going to go? That's what, that's what Jonah's problem was. Where am I going to go? Where am I going to run from God? 
Psalm, 130, uh, Psalm 139, where you can go, where you can hide from the presence of God. You can't escape God's presence. We need to recognize it. We need to understand it. We need to understand what it's talking about. You know, and I, and I got an interesting letter last week about, uh, if you remember, in, uh, and we were talking about the Euphrates River that would be dried up. The Bible says very clearly in Revelation 16, uh, verse 12, that the Euphrates River, one day, the Battle of Armageddon, will be dried up. That's what it says. And what's interesting about some of our thoughts, and I appreciate the thoughts because they were well thought out and there were some very good questions in here, but I want to just challenge you to think about something for a second. There are times where we read the Bible, and let me just say, here's a rule of thumb when you read the Bible. If the literal makes sense, accept it as such, lest you turn it into nonsense. You understand what I'm saying? God is very careful to tell us literally that which he wants to tell us literally, and tell us that symbolically, that which he wants to tell us symbolically. And he used terms like as or like that help us to understand what he's trying to say. So when you're reading the Bible, if the literal makes sense, take it literally because that's how it was intended. Why the Euphrates River will be dried up, all the speculation. I got a thing this morning, somebody handed it to me about the drought that's there. Interesting that people can walk across the Tigris and the Euphrates. Uh, they've dropped, so, uh, so the, the river levels have dropped so, so low that you can cross them on foot. Those are, those are all interesting things, and I appreciate that because I like to see stuff like that. But let me just share something with you. And I hope you understand this or take this right. And that's this. When the Bible says that Jesus opened the eyes of the blind, was that symbolic or was that literal? When the Bible says that Jesus walked on water, was that symbolic or was it literal? When the Bible said he opened the ears of the deaf to hear, was it symbolic or was it literal? When he said he fed the multitudes with a handful of material, was that symbolic or was it literal? When he said that he, when, when the Bible says that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, was that symbolic or is it literal? The point is, if the literal makes sense, take it literally because that's what God means. He's very careful to help us to understand that. So when the Bible says the Euphrates rivers will be dried up, guess what? It'll just be dried up. Now you can go through all the scientific reasons why you think that may be the case. Maybe it's a drought, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, maybe it's dams, maybe it's whatever. But the point of the matter is this. It's going to be dried up because that's what God says. The reason it's going to be dried up is more important than the fact that it's going to be dried up, although that's important in itself because it tells us that God is in control. But the reason that it's going to be dried up is to prepare the way for the kings of the east to come for the great battle of our God. That's what's important. And so when we look at this, can I help you just to understand something? And that's if, if the Bible says literally what it says, then believe it for what it says. Don't make nonsense out of it and don't overthink it. You know what? Is it hard for me to understand that the Euphrates River could be dried up by God? No. Why? Because it's just as hard for me to understand how Jesus walked on water. It's just as hard for me to understand how God created the universe when he spoke the word. It's just as hard for me to understand how God can raise people from the dead. But that's just as hard for me to understand as how God gives us life to begin with. So as we can see, there's a pattern developing here. And that's just what? That is this. That God knows a whole bunch more than we ever will. So deal with it. Oh, we're running out of time. Okay, let's shift gears. Although, you know, it's interesting, too. And, and we're... Um, I'm going to be out of town next week, so I'm just kind of hanging out here today. Um, but, but when you read where it says that he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God... I was reading this and we were debating in the car on the way here because I'm not really good at lyrics. My kids know this. I sing songs all the time. I don't, know what they, I don't even know what they're saying. And, uh, and it doesn't matter because I make up my own words. And my words are better anyway, so we all understand that. But, I, you know, it's like, but as I was reading this, the first thing that came to my mind was this. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord 
who has trampled out the vineyards, what? Where the grapes of wrath are stored. You know, the history of our country, there were those who understood there was a day coming when Jesus Christ would return, and he would return in judgment. And it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God for those who don't know him as Lord and Savior. But for those of us that do, it's a wonderful, comforting reassurance that, you know what? We put our hands and our fate in the hands of a loving and almighty God who is able to secure that fate against the day that is to come, which is the judgment of God upon those who reject Jesus Christ. In closing, let's take a look at uh, verses uh, 17 through 21, and we'll kind of put it all together. Verses 17 through 21, we read these words. And I saw an angel, an angel that was standing in the sun... And you know, when people go, was it really an angel? Hey, is that what it says? Duh. And was he really standing, or does it just mean like he might be standing? He might even be, you know, I saw an angel standing in the sun. How hard is that to understand? And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come and assemble for the great supper of God in order that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, of those who sit on them, the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. Notice the position of the angel is standing in the sun. The book of Joel says that the sun shall be turned into darkness. Is it not possible that the angel himself who stands in the, in the front of the sun could shield the sunshine from all of the earth and the earth would turn dark exactly as the word of God said? And the answer is very simple. And I'll tell you why. Because I believe in a miraculous God who can do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. And the evidence indicates that that's the case. We see the position of the angel. The proclamation to the birds is basically this. Supper's on. That's the new living version, by the way. I love that version because I understand it the best. Dinner, ding, 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 dinner time. And uh, if you've ever been to the, you know, it's like, what's the purpose of, of the gathering of the birds? What? To eat of those who will be destroyed by the judgment of God. Whoa. What happened to the hippie Jesus? God is a righteous and holy God. And he hates sin. And he will judge sin accordingly. You know what I underlined when I went through this? How many times the word flesh is used. You know why? Because God says in our flesh is nothing good at all. That in our flesh is nothing good. And man puts all his faith and trust in his own flesh and all that it does is fade away like the grass that will burn one day. Our faith and trust should be in the Lord Jesus Christ as we see who is able to overcome not only sin but also to overcome death. And also he will come one day in judgment. And as we look at this, basically the coming of the birds indicates that you know what? That it's basically supper time. And I like the way God puts it because, you know what, he's no respecter of man. He doesn't care if you're the greatest king of kings that ever ruled the face of the earth. You are not the king of kings and you're not the Lord of lords. And all those who are present to battle that day against Jesus Christ himself, the Bible says that he will just take them out. And the birds will get to eat off their flesh. Now some of us go, oh, that's just not politically correct. Hey, ooh, it's true. Have you ever been to the dump? Have you ever seen all those birds that hang out at the dump? They're just all over the place, man, looking for stuff to eat. In this particular case, God calls them all because he created them all, and they're all in obedience to him. And he says, come on, I'm going to take care of you. Supper time. It is the most expensive smorgasbord. I mean, I think about this. You know, it is an expensive buffet. The greatest kings in the world, a bird's going to be able to pick out an eye.
How many of you like sushi? Mm. What's the point? The point is this. It's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God where even the birds of His creation will dine on those who reject Jesus Christ. Wow. Notice the final conflict. It says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against Him who sat upon the horse and against His army. Notice the depravity of man. While man has gathered together to fight against Jerusalem, against Israel, they've gathered all the nations of the world represented by those who appear at that particular battle, the great battle of Armageddon, the war of Armageddon, the campaign of Armageddon. When we look at what takes place here, they may have gathered together for a whole bunch of other reasons. But in the final analysis, the reason is this, is because God wants to expose the evil and wicked hearts of men. And that man will gather together and in their utter insanity in their delusion that's been there and the delusion that was led by the, the, uh, the coming world leader in 2 Thessalonians 2 they will be deluded to the point where they will think that somehow or another that they can even defeat the very God who gave them life and they will battle against him how sad that is some of us are sitting there thinking how, how ridiculous that is what a stupid thought that you could battle against God and the question that I have for you is this you're sitting here today and you may be battling him yourself. You may be convicted that, you know what, I don't know if I die today, I'm going to heaven or not. I don't know what's going to happen to me. And the Spirit of God saying saying, you're going to be judged by God if you do not accept Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you look at this battle that's in the future and say how stubborn and arrogant and stupid those people are. And God says to you here as you listen to these words today, you are just as stubborn. You are just as foolish. If you're shaking your fist in the, hand, in the face of God, you need to bend a knee and you need to humble yourself and you need to acknowledge your sin and you need to ask God for forgiveness and you need to invite Jesus Christ into your life. And the Bible says for those who do, you will become a child of God to those who believe in his name. All the armies of the world will battle one final battle against Jesus Christ prior to his establishment of his kingdom here on earth and they will shake their fist in the face of God and they will try to defeat the very God who controls not only their life but their eternity in his hands. How sad that is. How tragic that is. How depraved that is. And how true it is. And every one of us before we came to Christ were in exactly the same position. We were rebellious in rebellion against God. The final conflict is going to indicate exactly as God says. There are none righteous, no, not one. There is nothing good in any of us. And But by the grace of God, you and I would be judged just as these armies will be judged on that final day. The capture of the beast and the false prophet. And he says, I saw the beast in 19 and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet. That's the coming world leader and his religious leader. They will be seized by God, the man who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast. And those who worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And you don't want to miss a coming session when we talk about judgment and we talk about the re resurrection and judgment 
judgment and the final destiny of every person that's ever lived. The bottom line is this. The beast and the false prophet, the coming world political leader and his religious sidekick, will get a taste of the lake of fire. They'll be the first ones ever to occupy it. And they will get a thousand-year head start on everybody else who will end up there that has rejected Jesus Christ. The consequences that the nation face will basically be this. And he will be, and they will be judged. And the rest were killed with sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. As we try to put all this together, I just want to contrast a couple of things for you. Because as we've examined this passage, I couldn't help but notice a striking contrast between Jesus Christ's first coming and that which is spectacularly displayed for us and described for us as far as the second coming of Jesus Christ. He came first in relative obscurity as a baby that was born in a major in Bethlehem. He was a servant and he suffered. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to serve, the Bible says, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as he rode that young colt into Jerusalem, it symbolized his coming was in peace. It was to offer to all who would receive him peace with God, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, that we can have peace even in our own life and in our own hearts, and we can have peace with one another. He came on a mission of peace. For the Bible says he didn't come to condemn the world, John three sixteen through 18. He didn't come to condemn the world, for the world had already been condemned. The moment that, the, that Adam sinned against God, the Bible says that all man from that time has born with a sin condition or a congenital sin defect, birth defect. We are all sinners who sin before God. And the reason we sin is because it's our nature we sin. The Bible says that he didn't come to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. We were all on the road to hell, but Jesus Christ intervened on our behalf. For those who believe in him, he came to bring peace, that there would be no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. It says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life for those who believe in Jesus Christ. That there's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. There's no other way to get there but through Jesus Christ and Him as our Lord. As we look at that and begin to realize that we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we don't have to fear the judgment of God that's to come because Jesus Christ took the judgment of God upon Himself in our place. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is coming again. And this time it won't be in obscurity but it will be in a spectacular display of glory. And all the world will see him as he truly is. He is a conquering warrior who defeated sin and Satan and death, who has the ability to give life and life eternally for those who believe. He's the King of kings and he's the Lord of lords. He is just not as it's hung above the cross. Here is the King of the Jews. He is the King of kings and he is Lord of lords. And as we look at the army that will follow him as trophies of his grace, we can be included, you can be included among those who will follow him one day to establish his kingdom here on earth. Not because there's anything good in of ourselves, but because we believe the word of God. And when God's word says it, we need to believe it and trust it. Because it's by his word that everything came into creation. It's by his word that God manifested himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything that God wanted us to know about himself, we find in the person of Jesus. Just as we reveal our thoughts and our hearts to those around us by the words that we use so God revealed his heart to us in revealing it in his son Jesus Christ the Bible says that he will come again and we will come with him those who believe in him and he will establish a kingdom here on this earth we will reign with him and his kingdom will have no end and at the end of that period of time all of eternity will be ushered in in a place called heaven and there's nothing better than that and as we look in a world today that's so filled with tragedy and hate and grief we are reaping what we have sown and the violence that we see 
the lack of any, any part on our part as adults, as Mike's saying this morning. The bottom line is this. What are we teaching this next generation? What are we teaching them about God? What are we teaching them about forgiveness in Christ? What are we teaching them about accountability and judgment for our actions? What are we teaching those around us? What are we teaching kids when we tell them that don't worry, it's some kind of fetal tissue or it's some kind of blob or it's some kind of mass? What are we teaching others when we don't give value to human life as been dignified by God who created us in His image and in His likeness? What are we teaching those around us when we don't hold them accountable for their actions or when our kids do something wrong and they're held accountable, we run and we get an attorney to defend them? Them for what they've done, even though we know what they've done is wrong. What are we teaching those around us? You know what? God's not mocked. Whatever we sow, we reap, and we're seeing the consequences in our culture today. And I don't mean to lay a heavy guilt trip on anybody here, but I'm here to tell you this, that there is no hope in humanity. The only hope that this world has is to turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness of our sins and direction of our life, and to know that God and Him, and him alone is the one who can offer it. Jesus Christ is coming again, and He's coming to judge the world for sin and to judge those who rejected him and the gift that he had to offer. My question for you is very simple. Do you know him? Have you put your faith and trust in him? Are you confident that the day that you die, you'll be absent from your body and present with the Lord? And if you're here and you're not, hey, you know what? Today is the day of the Lord. You can get right with God today. It's not about coming to church. It's not about reading the Bible. It's not about giving up smoking, drinking, or any of those things. It's not about any of that. It's about trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and in Him alone. And because He humbled Himself to the point of death on the cross, God bestowed upon Him a name above every other name that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. And God, I just pray for those who are listening today that aren't sure of their relationship with you, that they would pray a simple prayer, a prayer from their heart. God, forgive me. I know I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. I don't even claim to be. Even in my best days, I know that I still do things that are wrong. Things that people around me don't even know about, but according to your word, you do. And so I come before you in humility and ask you to forgive me of my sin. I recognize there's nothing good in me and there's no way that I could ever get into your presence on my own. And I believe that you sent Jesus to die in my place. That he died on the cross for me. And I believe that and I accept that. And I ask him to come into my life. I believe that he rose from the dead, proving that he not only can forgive sin, but he has the ability to provide life and life eternally. God, I thank you for that. I don't even understand completely, but I know from from my heart that that's what I want to be true of my life. And Lord, I thank you for forgiving me. Father, I also pray for those of us who know you and are walking with you, that we'll be men and women of our word, that when we say something, we mean it and we stand by it so that others around us can see the difference as they look at a world where we see words are so flippantly used and commitments are so easily broken. God, I just thank you that we'll never have to experience your wrath or judgment because Jesus became judgment on our behalf. God, we're humbled by that. We're in awe of that. And we look forward to that day where we will return with him as he establishes his kingdom here on earth and that kingdom will have no end. And we just thank you and praise you that through all the trials and tribulations of our day, that we know that our future is secure, not because we hope it is, not because we speculate that it might be, but because your word so clearly teaches that it is. And we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.